This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for, uh, I think it's September 1st, 2018. We have on the show today, sci-fi and action thriller author Peter Nealon. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to allow my fellow host and good friend, uh, Doranal, to say a few words. Um, Hello. Am I still coming through clearly? You're coming through clearly, just so that you know. We've hit our quota of technical difficulties for the episode. Everybody who's just tuning in, you can relax. Uh, Daddy Warpig, and I know this isn't normal for him. Normally, uh, I'm the one to do this, but Daddy Warpig is phoning it in. (laughs) We are in the middle of the vast American wilderness... And I was depending on having an uh, unreliable internet connection, but we don't even have that. So I am on my phone today. And I I tell you, it's like being crippled. It's like being crippled. I can't look at the chat, even our personal chat. I can't see that. I can't see the YouTube chat. So I have no idea what people are are saying, uh, or even if there's anybody there. I don't even have headphones. I just have me and my phone and, uh, you know, a real hope that we can... uh, uh, we can get this done on time and, and deliver a quality show under trying circumstances. Um, in fact, I have to I have to hit the mute button because I got to go grab something. I'm in the middle of a house with uh, people watching TV and stuff. I'm not even in a quiet place. That's that's what today is. So to today to this is today. Well, you know, as long as we're both here, we got a quality show. Um, speaking of chat, Bradford Walker, Simon Hogwood, say hello. It's good to have you guys on with us. Um, so today, uh, I, I, the only thing I have to talk about is really boring gaming stuff. So let's just skip to, uh, brutal action thrillers. Um, as you mentioned, our special guest, uh, Peter Nealon, uh, who I've just been chatting with him, uh, apparently is a ex-Marine who, who got into writing, uh, after that. Uh, Pete, welcome to the show. Good to, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, that was that was really uh, fascinating. You, uh, you well, let's start at the end before we go to the beginning. You just said that your seventeenth novel just came out. What's that? That would be uh, High Desert Vengeance, number five in the Brannigan's Blackhearts uh, action adventure series. Um, now I'm not much of a reader, as as the audience knows. If you've have you ever listened to the show? Uh, once or twice, yes. Yeah, yeah. You, so you know, Daddy Warpig's the one who actually reads. Um, can, can I just say, uh, superficially speaking, uh, those titles are awesome. Well, like, did, did you did you come up? Did you sit down and think? Uh, I'm going to think of the most badass names for a book in a series uh, possible and get those. Yeah, kind of. Um, the series somewhat got started as I wrapped up my first. Uh, action series, uh, the American Praetorian series, uh, last year, and especially I started really looking at things, especially after uh, Galaxy's Edge came out, and I started learning a lot from Nick Cole and Jason Ansbach on trying to make this whole self-publishing thing a bit more profitable than it had been. Uh, turns out that doing 
two books a year isn't actually going to get you very far on this side of the house. So how to, how to approach the action adventure genre on the, the self-published side in hopefully a somewhat more lucrative way while at the same time still kind of indulging myself. And, uh, well, no, this is good. I mean, let's be fair. Um, being a Marine is a hard life and, and, and you made it out and you're writing awesome books and getting paid for it. Like everything that you do from now on is gravy. Am I right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, That's the perspective I take. So, so how's, it working out? how's it working out for you though? Um, uh, I'm still learning a lot. I've still got a ways to go. It's, it's been a better year than the previous four, but it could still be better. And uh, like I said, always learning, always improving. Um, well, I think you're learning, you're learning from the best, aren't you? It's, uh, what what Colin Ansbach did with Galaxy's Edges is is, um, is incredible, really. Yeah, it is. And uh, as a matter of fact, Nick used. Um, one of my blurbs that he had helped me with as an example of how to do it better on his YouTube show yesterday afternoon. Oh, very nice. So, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's a lot better at that than I am. But, uh, like I said, always learning, always, always improving. If you're not, if you're not improving, you're dying. So you started off intending to be a science fiction writer. We, we were talking before the show. You said you intended to be a science fiction writer, but kind of got sidelined into, uh, you know, modern realistic action thrillers. How did that happen? Well, I started dabbling in writing in high school. I don't want to say how many years ago. Um, it largely came out of I couldn't necessarily afford everything that I wanted to read or play. I was a big fan of uh, wing commander at the time and X wing. And um, so I set out to kind of do my own and I have somewhere. There's still a very fat notebook full of notes and outlines and scraps of first drafts of what was essentially wing commander with the serial numbers filed off that eventually started getting certain amounts of Star Wars and Babylon 5 as I got into that show, uh, wrapped into it as well. And that just kind of simmered and uh, marinated for years as got out of high school, went to college, 9-11 happened, joined the Marine Corps. And I kept kind of poking at it for most of that time whenever I had a chance. But uh, when I was getting ready to get out, I had this whole sort of backstory for this big epic science fiction series that his, that what came out of that has been shelved for the moment. I've still got notes and possibilities for that later. But uh, I had this backstory of the chaos of the 21st century that was going to lead into the, that particular universe. And as I was looking at 
getting out of the Marine Corps, I started thinking, huh, I bet I could tell some stories in that backstory drawing on some of my personal experience to turn it into a, a military action story and then eventually lead into uh, pretty much a catastrophic catastrophic war, revolution, chaos, and eventually work into the science fiction series. And with some inspiration from Stephen Pressfield's The Profession, which was very much along those sorts of lines in some way, um, that led to Task Force Desperate, which was my first novel. Um, I should mention to folks who are uh, listening either now or later on live, either live or later on, um, links to both your uh, original action thrillers series, the two of them, uh, is in the uh, description of the video underneath it, and also a link to the brand new Unity Wars series that you just uh, are either just had or are about to have the third book come out. That's also in the uh, uh, there's also a link to that in the description of the video. I I had a question I wanted to ask you though about the military in books. Um, obviously, um, you know, Nick was in the army, Jason was in the army, you're in the army, and a lot of the writers I know, uh, Colonel Krautman, Krautman um, was in the army, um, John Ringo was in the army, and so, uh, you know, David Drake, all of you guys have grounded experience, although from reading John Ringo, my impression is that most of his experience in the army was wrestling with paperwork, that he really hated paperwork because paperwork and logistics come up way more often than you would expect um, in his books. If you read them, pay attention to how often paperwork comes up. But my question is for those of uh, us who are want to be writers and want to write about the military like you guys do, but are civilians, is there, um, I guess I have to, two questions who is it that's a civilian writer that actually gets the military point of view right um i mean obviously larry writes about the military um and then tom clancy famously wrote about the military they're both civilians um but if uh what other what else could a civilian author do to get into the mindset of the military and write a military character who is authentic who is you know has that mindset of having gone through boot camp and having gone through training and having been deployed and having to deal with all the machinery uh, of the bureaucracy and then having been in combat. So who is it that you think did it right? And what would you recommend um, authors do to kind of get the military right in their books? Well, for, first off, I have to backtrack and issue one small correction. I was not in the army. I was a Marine. That is, it is an important distinction. I meant I meant to say military. I was I was just I was muted and and my face exploded when when he said uh, army I was like oh no he didn't do that <laughs> I I meant to say military you were in the military um, apologies um, sincere apologies I, I'm trying to think Clancy actually at least past a per certain point Clancy got more wrong than he got right um. I find a lot of his later books rather cringeworthy, but uh, I'm trying to think of a civilian writer who really, really kind of, as much as I hate the term, gets the zeitgeist, as it were. Um, one of my thoughts was uh, Bill Keith, who 
a lot of his stuff is out of under the the pseudo of Ian Douglas, but he was a corpsman. He was a naval navy corpsman, so he he was he was a, a veteran as well. And even even he gets he gets a bit motarded, as we say, in some of his stuff, where the the, the motivational stuff gets a little over the top. Um, the best thing I can say is find somebody like Colonel Kratman or um, somebody who's been in and is willing to talk about it. Because some, some guys just aren't willing to talk about it. Some are a little too willing to talk about it. Um, just doing the, doing that kind of research and talking to actual veterans is pretty much the best way you're going to find of tapping into that mindset and that experience. I've tried to do a little bit of, uh, a little bit of advice columns every once in a while on, uh, my action adventure blog, the American Praetorians blog, um, stuff like the key to authenticity in action scene in combat scenes is pain because the job hurts that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, there isn't really a, a, a magic formula. You just gotta get to know the get to know people who are willing to share their experience, or at other times, look over what you've read, what you've written, and say, "Nope, sorry, that's crap. That's crap. That's crap. This is the way it would actually work." That's really that's really interesting. Along those lines, is it more important to have an authentic battle experience or is it the other, the day-to-day -day, uh, sort of, for lack of a better phrase, like the rank and file logistical stuff that goes on in the military? Does it, does it rankle you when that stuff's inaccurate or is uh, you, we used an example is, is Clancy bad because he doesn't know combat or is he bad because he just doesn't know how yes. the military works? True. Um, some of some of my issues with Clancy are kind of big picture stuff. He didn't really know what to do after the uh, the end of the the Cold War, and his a lot of his scenarios got increasingly ludicrous. And he also he got wedded to the push button war idea that came out of desert storm, even though the reality of what future war near future war is, was graphically illustrated in Mogadishu in 93. It's, it's like I, I was in a conversation a while back where somebody was talking about the whole future, future soldier. And they had some halo esque armor suit at a, an army recruiting booth somewhere and i said we've seen the soldier of the future he's wearing uh man jammies and sandals with an ak that's older than he is but uh i mean my focus my focus when i write i write action adventure stories so there's gonna be i like to say i skim over the boring stuff like i don't spend a hundred pages on the planning aspect because it would take 100 pages to do it in detail and nobody really wants to read that because it's grueling and it's 
I'm not trying to write the the Ranger Handbook here. So, so you're not you're not trying to write a heist movie, right? You're not yeah. trying trying to write a heist. You're trying to write a, an action series. Yeah. Um, now I don't completely gloss over that that part happens, but it's like after several hours of the boring stuff, we stepped off and then we're off to the races with the actual the actual story. Um, I know Ringo Ringo likes to get down into the weeds with uh, logistics and planning and all of that sort of thing, and uh, he does a fairly good job job of it. He was airborne. Um, and Kratman does a fair bit of that too, as one would expect from a guy who was an 06 colonel. But uh, it's more, I mean, the logistics are the logistics. If you do it right, there, there are those who do it right and there are those who just don't bother to do it at all, as far as I can tell, really. And, uh, and, and you think it's, for your books, it's a waste of time? Pretty much, yeah. People read my stuff for firefights. Love it. For for firefights and a certain degree of this is the sort of thing that is happening in the world. Um, I've been accused of prophecy a time or two, which I don't take particularly seriously. Um, but you can, you, I mean, you've uh, you've seen enough modern warfare to actually be able to predict or infer what what might happen yes and some of that just takes paying attention so uh, let me ask a question um, one of the pe things i've seen uh people suggest um and is uh looking at uh, uh biographies or autobiographies of military uh figure obviously uh marcus luttrell did one um and then there was american sniper and uh jason onspock when he spoke about writing the very first Galaxy's Edge book, which is that, you know, really, really brutal combat on, on Kublar, he spoke of being uh, inspired by um, a detailed history of um, one of the first big battles in Iraq. Um, in, uh, uh, and he spoke highly of that book and said he wanted to reflect the realities of that combat in his writing. Do you think that um, these kinds of autobiographies and stuff, are they useful for for civilians uh, to give you somewhat of a picture into the military mind? To a certain extent. I, I, would, I would add a caveat emptor there. And I, I did a little bit of work in the, the, the nonfiction side uh, for a few years. And what I found, particularly with big publishers of those sorts of books is I don't really think they're looking so much for true history as they are for a thrilling story. The general, the, the impression I came away with was they were looking for action adventure novels with nonfiction on the cover. And uh, so you can take some from that, but at the same time, understand that 
that story has been groomed to appeal to an audience. I'm not saying that it's necessarily lies, though. There are definitely those out there in the uh, among veterans who will denounce some of this stuff as lies. And there's this huge kerfluffle over Marcus Luttrell's book and that entire operation. Um, almost, almost as the same level as there is about the uh, American sniper. So, a lot of the modern memoirs, you just have to again caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. You're getting part of the story. As long as you accept that fact, then particularly if you're looking for fodder for an action-adventure story, by all means, you, depending on, honestly, a lot of these memoirs are written by a professional author with cooperating with the individual who's credited as, the, as writing their autobiography. Um, I think James Patterson did uh, a lot of Lone Survivor. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Um, That's surprising. I mean, not surprising you mentioned uh, uh, American Sniper. That was that was an enjoyable film, but uh, everybody said that that was actually was sort of they sort of mishmashed a bunch of mostly true stories together into one thing. Yeah, I actually, I, I honestly, I haven't seen the movie. I, to, to me, it's essentially oh, another seal movie. Yep, it it, it kind of was. Um, so if the the stuff that you got, and this is, I'm going to be switching switching um, lanes here quite drastically. I was really intrigued by you were talking about a background that you had taken some inspiration from. A wing commander and then i believe later you said that you, you uh, weren't moving forward with that just yet but um is that something that you find writers do a lot is that not to duplicate something but just to take inspiration from something and say hey that's kind of interesting setup i'll, I'll take little bits of that and run with that i think it's uh i think there's definitely a lot of it out there i mean it's been said that there are only so many uh so many ideas, so many different stories, and they're they're all just retold in different ways. I'm not sure I entirely buy that, but uh, yeah, like I mean, Galaxy's Edge is a prime example. It's Star Wars, not Star Wars. And uh, as a matter of fact, my own Unity Wars series is a, a different, sort of a different branch of Star Wars, not Star Wars in a way. Uh, so. Um... Unity Wars is an action sci-fi thriller. Um, and if, if you had a, like a pocket description of the background of it that would you know, make listeners want to read it, what would that be? It's a different take on what I think the Clone Wars would have actually been like. Oh, you know, that sounds interesting. Um, I, I'm interested now. Uh, actually, I loved your reference to Wing Commander and Babylon Five earlier. Do you still have a lot of Babylon Five influence in your your science fiction stories? Um, 
not really in the Unity Wars. In uh, in the the shelved series, there's still definitely some there. Um, I mean, the, the, past a certain point, it gets hard to separate. Okay, what did did, did this come from that, or did it was somewhere else, or just bouncing around in the caverns of my brain for a while? I mean, they, you could say that there are. Uh, yeah, you could probably say there are certain elements of Babylon Five in the Unity Wars. Eventually, um, along with the Clone Wars, Lensman. Um, hammer slammers. So, so what's you, what's the one big thing? What's the one big change? I mean, I I tried to make myself forget the Clone Wars, the film, but as an idea, when <laughs> when uh, when uh, was it? Leia said that in the recording. It it evoked something something impressive. What does it What does it mean to you? What does the Clone Wars mean to you? Well, I kind of went back to mainly the references in Timothy Zahn's uh, Heir to the Empire trilogy. And one of the first things that struck me was you don't name a war after the winning side. That If you look through uh, anywhere in history, like the Indian Wars, the, the Indians didn't win the, that one. Um, it's either after named after the enemy by the side that either survives or wins, or it's named after a place where it's fought, like Vietnam or the or Iraq or Afghanistan. So having the Republic and later the Empire name a war after themselves just didn't seem right. So the clones would have to have come from the enemy. I, I know George Lucas did this whole weird, it, it was all theater, essentially. I mean, disposable human beings against disposable robots. There's, there's not a lot of stakes there, really, is there? Um, no, I, I, and George Lucas made it very clear to obfuscate any sort of stakes or anything yeah. in those in those stories. So I started with the idea Okay, let's assume that. I mean, it it actually kind of got its start as this just weird writing prompt that propped into my head about three years ago, of how would I fix the prequels, and uh, it was, and so the idea was that there was some system that. Uh, was fed up with corruption or whatever in the Republic, plus a certain degree of megalomania. And uh, this would be the the origin of the what Zahn called the Sparty cloning uh, cylinders in the Heir to the Empire series. And then Obi-Wan would get wrapped up in that and in the process meet Anakin Skywalker, who in this version would have been a grown man and a uh, already an officer in, a, in his his uh, systems military. Hence, I mean, my take was when Obi Wan said, 
when I first knew him, your father was already a great pilot. Nobody watching that at the time was thinking a 10 year old kid piloting a pod racer. So I, 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 I wrote down a little bit of it to kind of get it out of my head, uh, knowing that I could never actually do anything with it because I didn't want to be sued into oblivion by Disney and Lucasfilm. But then Galaxy's Edge happened and I brought it out, dusted it off and started thinking, okay, how would I file the serial numbers off this and make this work? And that kind of exploded from there. So I, uh, I'll be, you, when you're filing the serial numbers off of something, you've got to do a thorough job so that people don't see, necessarily see the file marks. So there's no, I, I decided there's not going to be any big galaxy spanning Republic or empire or anything like that. In fact, that's one of the key elements of the universe is that there never has been because the galaxy is just too big of a place and the logistical and manpower requirements of trying to maintain that kind of a power structure are too high until somebody finds a way to create manpower, lots of it, very quickly. And that's where the clone tech comes in. Oh, that's brilliant, right? Because so, whoever makes the clones can say, well, first, I'm going to make an army to take over this planet, and then I'm going to build a, a army of laborers to mine the planet for whatever I need. Exactly. And I've only started to brush, to kind of scratch the surface in the books that are written so far. But one of the things that I want to kind of highlight in this series that was never, never even close to touched on in Star Wars is the ethics of creating disposable human beings for the purpose of cannon fodder. Because you know what's going to happen. It's you just have to talk about the ethics of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I mean, it, it reminds me of the unit eugenics programs of the the mid century. Uh, yeah. you, know, you, you know, you know that there are people on Earth right now trying to figure out how to engineer. Um, I know it's a, a sci-fi trope, but engineer super soldiers, not uh, that, not like a superhuman, but you know, if, if if we could create a race of Dolph Lundgrens, we could probably take over the world. Yeah. And in this case, we've got human beings who are essentially manufactured, grown to uh, rapidly grown to full, uh, full growth, indoctrinated, given the pretty much the bare minimum training and thrown at the enemy. So when you were looking at putting that together, um, I know a lot of uh, uh, a lot of writers take inspiration from various periods of of history, so they have kind of a, a template to work off of. Is there any particular period of history you're looking at? Well, for the Unity's tactics, I looked at uh, the Chinese and North Koreans in uh, at particularly at Chosen Reservoir, uh, massed human wave assaults, because quantity has a quality of its own. Uh, the uh, 
I did posit the existence of, and they they kind of they kind of started as a an XP for the Jedi, but turned into their own thing entirely. The the military brotherhoods, because there is no vast political organ in the galaxy, but there's still interstellar trade and commerce and travel. There are still going to be people who attempt to. They're going to be pirates, raiders, um, and in fact, there's a there's sort of this this awful alien horror threat called the Matate, who uh, also feature rather heavily. In fact, they are the the primary antagonists of the second book. Um, so there has to be had to be somebody who could travel the stars and defend those who needed needed it and that's where the military brotherhoods came from and rather than being jedi with the serial numbers filed off they're more knights templar with uh high-tech weapons armor and starships of varying degrees of uh honor shall we say there there are different brotherhoods with different histories different cultures different rivalries and uh the Correctican brotherhood is the the primary one that i've featured so far though i introduced the order tancredis cluster in uh book two and they're of a rather different character than the the Correctican brotherhood and uh well that's interesting i take i take a little bit from here a little bit from there i have a question about the 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 world or, or galaxy you're building up since there isn't any galaxy wide empire yet. It, it sounds like you have, uh, I mean, the planets would have vastly different cultures. So do you have the sort of different military orders and traditions on in each uh, planet of your setting? Uh, For the most part? Yes. And uh, I also, I, I'm trying to steer away from the monolithic alien races trope as well. So uh, you've got various aliens and humans intermixed. You have shared culture. You have planets with that were settled by more than one uh, race. So they have sort of a, a weird shared culture. Uh, you have multiple cultures within various races. I mean, it is action oriented. So a lot of this is seen in the, the cracks and pauses in between stuff blowing up and fun stuff like that yeah if you were if you were writing a intergalactic travel log your uh, your icon there wouldn't be two rifles no so um when you're looking at books like this how do you strike a balance between the the you know action scenes and character moments i just one of the things i think that people get wrong uh, in a lot of circumstances, but I've been seeing it particularly with uh, Tom King and his Batman um, scripts and uh, a lot of Hollywood war movies are that they take people who are or who should be um, fairly stolid professionals in their actual jobs. I mean, because soldiering, if you're in the military, soldiering is your job and you are trained and you have to act in a professional manner to make it to make it work. This is not a barbarian horde. This is not the Mongol horde. It's the U.S. military or, you know, some other 
professional military. And so they're not acting like kids from high school. They're not screaming at each other. They're not disobeying orders all over the place. Um, and that's what you get in a lot of Hollywood depictions of soldiers, of people who are just hysterical all the time. And in battle, everybody's panicking and things like that. And then he goes, you know, kind of the same way with emo Batman, where Batman's just um, really too over Sherry. He talks about his feelings all the time and stuff. And it just, it doesn't make sense that a person who is that disciplined for that long, who has worked that hard to achieve that level of physical and mental mastery of themselves would be whiny, cryy emo. Um, but at the same time, in a, in a book, you have to give enough distinction to your characters. You have to give enough difference between characters for the audience to be able to identify with them and empathize with them and to feel like there are stakes in the story so that if someone, you know, they kind of like dies, that it matters to them. How do you balance that? Or, or is that something you, you particularly in your books, is that something you've even had to worry about? It is something that I've had to work on. Um, if there's if there's one common complaint I get, it's that there's not enough character development, even though the, the plot is running a thousand miles an hour through bullets flying and IEDs going off. And, um, and I think I've, I've, that's one thing I really set out to start improving in the Brannigan's Blackheart series. And I should say that the Brannigan's Blackheart series is in some ways, I would call a spiritual successor to some of the eighties gold Eagle action adventure series, specifically one called the soldiers of Barabbas or SOBs, which I've become something of a, a fan of. But the way that I handle it there is within with each, because the Blackhearts are mercenaries and they're scattered all over the country. So with the beginning of each story, as the job hits, the, the mission comes down, the call goes out and I get to introduce each character some way as they get the call and show up for the briefing and start prepping for the mission. Um, if, if I could say so, that was, one of the best parts of Armageddon um, that was one of the most amusing parts is having to chase down these guys all over the country and get them together. Um, so even though that doesn't sound like it's a key moment of an adventure, that can be really fun in a lot of ways. Yeah. And yeah, your, your comments about uh, the, the Hollywood screaming teenagers, uh, yeah, I detest that trope too because professionals are professionals, and uh, the, I I definitely take steps to make my shooters, whether they're whether they're Brotherhood in the Unity Wars or Brannigan's Blackhearts or the Praetorian uh, Praetorian Security in the American Praetorian series, they are pros and they act like it. And during a firefight, your concentration is the fight. And anything else becomes secondary because if you're concentrating on something else and you get your head blown off, it might not just be you that dies. It might be the guy next to you. Um, I've been listening to Diversity and Comics. Um, he's a YouTuber, and he was in both the Army and the Marines uh, at different times. 
um, did several tours uh, in combat over in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and one of the things he talks about in battle, um, he specifically mentions it's not that, you know, screamy panicky thing, but it's more like um, a puzzle. It's more like a problem to be solved where you say, okay, we need a base of fire over here. You send that squad over there to provide a base of fire. Now these other guys uh, on the other side move up, you know, one squad, one squad moves, the other squad covers them. Then the squad are just moved covers and the one behind them moves up and it's, it's a, you know, tactical puzzle and you're more really, really focused on trying to do that and fight rather than all of this, you know, drama, uh, uh or I should say melodrama, even overblown. Yeah. I just, I think that they don't understand, not that we would being civilians have never been under fire. You don't necessarily understand what it's like, but at the same time, I feel like if you listen to soldiers, if you do a bit of using your imagination from similar instances, I mean, even if we've never been in fire, we've never been under fire, we've never been in combat, there are times in which things happen around you that your life is in danger. Maybe it was a car wreck. Maybe, you know, some, a roommate pulled a gun on you. Maybe that one actually happened to me. Um, whatever. Um, and so you can use those moments as kind of an insight into partially what the psychology is like. And then that will help make your, even if you're not writing the same way a military person would, or you're not perfect about depicting the military, at the very least, you will add enough believability that you'll cross the line into being acceptable. Yeah, there's, there's a degree of... Definitely, adrenaline is adrenaline. Um, some of being able to cope with it comes from training, and uh, yeah, melodrama is is an excellent word for what some of these shows and stories try to do. Um, and yes, combat really is a, a thinking man's game, and I think. Part of, honestly, I think part of Hollywood's problem is that they assume that we're all knuckle-dragging ignorami, and therefore they can't imagine the fact that combat is a thinking man's game. They, they think it's just mindless violence, and it's definitely not. Mindless violence gets you, your entire side, dead. See, I... Um... And I'm going to go back to another YouTube series. There was a, um, a historian, not someone who'd been in combat, but a historian talking about why he disliked uh, Hollywood movies that depict battle, like even um, going back to Gladiator. Um, not that they're negative on the military, but that all that they show is like, okay, everybody stand up and run at the enemy. And that's it. Um, and even... Even game, video games that are not necessarily realistic, uh, there's one called Brothers in Arms Hell's Highway. And it's very much um, a tactical um, game where you have to take one unit and set them up to provide you know, cover and then move up with the assault uh, force. And then when you get close enough, you've got the enemy suppressed, you toss in grenades, flush them out of cover, and then you can shoot them. Um, but he said that one of the most disappointing things, being a historian, reading up on battles, reading up on how battles are fought, is that 
nobody in Hollywood writes battle scenes with any kind of tactics, with any kind of thought, with any kind of the sort of events that you would have to see in battle. They're not just, okay, everybody stand up, run at the enemy. It's very much, okay, this unit has moved in. They've got the enemy. They've engaged the enemy. They've pinned the enemy down so the enemy can't maneuver. And now we can send in another unit uh, and flank them. Um, and in this case, I'm thinking of, you know, of physical combat, of, of Roman uh, legion combat, but it applies to anything. You you have to look at where the enemy is. You have to look at the natural circumstance you're in. What's the cover like? What's uh, the concealment like? Uh, what's the terrain like? Is that hill high enough to be able to shoot down over their cover? Um, and then move and react faster than the enemy so that you're forcing the enemy to react to your actions. Take the uh, Take the initiative, be uh, aggressive, and keep on hammering on the enemy until, they're, until they break. You don't have to kill all of them. You just have to make them so confused and so uh, bewildered and so uh, just not thinking. So they're thinking with their snake brain, not with their uh, concrete brain. Then they can't react to you. They can't get organized. They can't counterattack. And so their only choice is to die where they are, surrender, or flee. Um, and it's, it's a matter of psychology. I mean, yes, battle is about people killing people, but that's not just to kill people. It's not just to fill graves of the enemy. It's to convince the enemy that they're messing with someone that they should not have messed with, that they cannot beat, and you break their spirit and they flee. And then even on a larger sense or strategic sense, you're trying to force the enemy to realize this is a terrible mistake. We made a war with the wrong people and get them to surrender and come to the peace table and sign a treaty. At least modern war. I mean, obviously ancient wars fought for loot or territory, whatever, but um, none of that, none of those um, looking at the circumstances and moving in shows up in most Hollywood movies. I think the one that I've noticed that did it the best is Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because because I'm really interested in real war stories and, and the like. But in the context of a piece of fiction, uh, a writer who doesn't really understand warfare or how it works or anything may still write a interesting and compelling battle because they use the, it as a an obstacle or a challenge for the characters in the story. They may not care about logistics and maybe that maybe that'll make you wrinkle your forehead as someone who understands the nature of warfare but uh, as long as the stakes and the action are well described and so that you can understand what the characters are doing and why uh, that will be a compelling action scene it will be an interesting fight because maybe you care about the characters or you're invested in the result the outcome of the battle so i guess my question is why does it matter? It's a matter, sometimes it's a matter of suspension of disbelief. Um, and everybody has their own threshold for that. Um, you, find, you find that a lot of readers really just get turned off if, if they can't picture the events actually happening. Or or the, the here, I mean, I understand, I mean, we've all seen lots of bad movies where I don't know, let's take, for example, The Last Jedi, where uh, none of the tactics make sense even within the 
science fiction world of Star Wars. You know, the slow moving bombers with their own gravity and, and so on and so forth. Uh, none of that movie made any sense. So, so there's that, but then there's also, there's also good enough. Yeah. And some of it, I think just depends on genre and how it's, how it's sold. I mean, um, if people are looking for an action story, then the action needs to be at the same time. It needs to be meaty and it needs to be, it needs to make enough sense within the genre that it's being told. I mean, if I started having the Blackhearts jumping over, jumping over pickup trucks and uh, punching people through walls, then that would, it, it wouldn't work because it's a, it's a, it's a modern day mercenary action series. So people expect the reader expects the Blackhearts to act like regular soldiers. So, so you, special operations soldiers, but still not no, no superpowers and, and they expect them to, uh, the, the ex- expectation has been built that they're going to act like professionals and they're going to use tactics and fire movement and this sort of thing. So, so if I read this book, I'm, I'm going to come out, not only am I going to be entertained, I'm going to say, hey, I learned something about how professionals operate uh, without having to go do it myself. Within limits. I have actually, I, a few years ago, I actually changed the, the, the copyright disclaimer in, on the copyright page that always says this is a work of fiction, resemblance to real persons and events, purely coincidental. I took it a step further that... Uh, it's a work of fiction. It is not autobiogra- autobiographical. It is not a true story couched as fiction. It is, in fact, far more exciting than anything 99% of real gunfighters ever experience. Because I actually ran into a guy who was convinced, no matter what I said, that Task Force Desperate was a, an account, a fictionalized account of a real operation that I'd been a part of. <laughs> not even. Yeah, it's... Again, it's it's got to be if you're writing if you're writing about a professional soldier, then that action scene has to fit with what a prof- how a professional soldier is going to act and how he is going to see the uh, see the action and see the the world and the terrain around him. Um, if you're writing about Joe Sixpack, who suddenly gets thrown into the middle of the zombie apocalypse. Don't get me started on zombie genre. Uh, then it's You're not a fan. <laughs> not really, no. Uh, but it's going to be again. It's it depends on your setup. It depends on the story you're trying to tell. If you're trying to say, if you're trying to present a story of elite special operations soldiers and none of your tactics make sense, then it's going to jerk your reader out of out of the experience. He's going to then he's going to toss the book against the wall and and leave. One of my constant uh, one of my usual fallback examples is one of the earlier ghost written Clancy novels. And pretty much the last 
one book with Tom Clancy on the cover I ever picked up. Um, Against All Enemies. And the guy who ghost wrote it, I'd run into before, and he's awful in everything I've run into that he writes. But he had a former SEAL working with the agency, going into these sort of fugue, flashback, PTSD states about his uh, dead buddy while on the X in the middle of an operation, like when he's supposed to be paying attention to the situation around him and he's off in La La Land. That was, I was already getting pissed off about that. And then he's got him doing this John Woo leaping through the air, double fisting suppressed glocks that somehow he had concealed on his person beforehand. So he's firing midair at the bad guys with his principles, the people he's supposed to be protecting in the same area as the bad guys. And I tossed the book and never went back to it. And I've pretty much given up on the entire, I should have given up on the series long before because that one, the, the Clancy peaked at uh, the clear and present data. But within the genre you're telling, you're within the genre you're writing in, it has to meet the reader's expectations or yeah, you're doing it wrong. So you set up, uh, I'll use Larry Korea as an example. Um, his monster hunter international has one set of expectations for, uh, how the gunfights in that series work. And then you look at, um, his other, um, his other series, he, uh, wrote, um, the three book series. Dang it. I can't remember the name now. Dead six. six. Dead six. That's it. Completely different set of expectations there. Um, he wrote that with his good friend, who's another Bayon author whose name I also can't remember right now. I Mike Cooper. Apologies. Yes, Mike Cooper. I'm sad because I'm friends with both of them on Facebook and I can't remember their names. And I'm just I'm cringing now because I've read both series. I just, well, you're off their Christmas card list now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, I actually I've, I wrote a short in the Dead Six universe with Mike. Uh, just before Alliance of Shadows came out. It's uh, called Rock Me Hard Place. And it's actually up on the Bane website. But that's that's an example of reader expectations. When you go into Dead Six, even if you're a Larry Korea fan, um, your expectations for how brutal combat is are going to be different in there than they were for Monster Hunter International series. And even that's going to be different from Hard Magic uh, series. Um, it's just, they're all Larry Korea books, obviously, but the level of uh, perceived reality has to be completely different. Uh, I remember he was talking about, I think it was the second book in the Dead Six series, where he thought he did a really good job with the combat, and then, you know, he sent it off to his Reader Force Alpha, um, many of whom are military, and one of the guys who was a special operations uh, i think he said he was a, for a former seal sent back like 37 pages of corrections <laughs> to various you know not necessarily the feel of it or how the characters are reacting to it but just like okay you know people trained in the modern special uh uh special combat units they don't do this anymore that was something from the vietnam era and we we do this other thing instead so it's just kind of interesting how 
uh, how much, how many corrections he has to get. And I guess maybe that's a suggestion for people. Uh, I know a lot of people in the pulp revolution are writing military uh, books or are planning military books. And one of the suggestions I might have is if you've got people who you know who are in the military, who have been in the military, who are real, willing to be alpha readers for you, by all means, you know, tap into them and they can tell you where you're doing it right and where you're doing it wrong. Exactly. One last, one I last want to take for me. It's one one last thought for me that that uh, since we started talking specifically about battle scenes, I'm reminded of the best scene in John Wick. Have you seen that film? John. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I've seen. I've seen both. Uh, both John Wicks. Yeah, the, the the second one wasn't as good as the first, but most importantly, the best, in my opinion, the best action scene in John Wick is at the club. It's it is it is a stupid just run in and shoot everybody scenario, but the film takes its time to establish the layout of the club, where everybody is, where all the guards are, where the uh, target is, and and the target's buddies, and it does that. It just takes a couple of minutes and it sets the whole thing up, and then. And then John Wick gives Big Daddy Cool the night off and goes in on a rampage. And and then the action is fast and furious, but you can follow the whole thing. Yeah. And that's... Uh, and also they took the time and the effort to work on the gun handling in that movie, which had a lot of people geeking out. Yeah. Uh, he... it, it's very... It's very competition based in many ways. If you, if you really, if you're in, in, if you're a gun guy and, and you're watching it, you can, you can see a lot of it comes from the, the three gun world. Um, particularly that, that scene in the tunnel in the second one. Um, oh, where he's got all the, the different firearms just located throughout the tunnel so he could switch as soon as he runs out of ammunition. Yeah. 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 That, that, that was pretty much a, a three gun match in a, in a tunnel with, meat targets <laughs> but uh but at the same time it was it was genuine gun handling and it was done smoothly and it was done professionally and that resonated with a lot of people yeah. and, and and i'm not a i'm not a shooter I, I haven't shot in a while so i i'm not i'm not a professional nor do i do competitions or anything but it just felt yeah, I, I had I, I saw the video of Keanu Reeves doing three gun afterwards. It just it felt uh, it felt real for lack of a better word. And a, a friend of mine actually was when he was watching the second one, he was talking about he was round counting, and he said, <laughs> "Okay, he's got he's got three more rounds and he's going to have to reload." And sure enough, he went dry and three more rounds, dropped the mag and and reloaded. Oh wow! Hollywood never does that. No. One of uh, one of the other people I know, uh, who's a friend of mine, who does a lot of um, combat competitions, was pointing out that in um, the first John Wick, at several instances, he says he does a tactical reload where he still has a couple bullets left in this clip, but not enough for the situation, and he has time to reload. So he drops the mag, slaps another one in, just because he needs a full mag for whatever might happen next. Now he was really impressed about that. Is not only was he reloading on time, he was doing tactical reloads to make sure he kept. Uh, you know, kept his gun full of bullets for the next encounter. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that we've always trained for is keep your weapon in the best condition possible. 
Now it can be taken, it can be taken to extremes. I mean, you're not going to fire two rounds and do attack reload, but when you have, when you have a chance, if you've engaged, then you, you need to be keeping track of your ammunition supply and in a, during a lull, all right, swap out. Make sure that partial mag is somewhere where you're not going to lose it, but also someplace that uh, you're not going to inadvertently grab that one looking for a full mag. This but. is this is something else I found really fascinating, um, and I'm hoping you have a, a you know some insider and opinion on this. Um, one of the things I found fascinating again, I was watching another video on YouTube that they went to England has this massive. Uh, a collection of firearms like a a really comprehensive collection of all the of all of these firearms they brought together under one under one roof and people who are scholars can get access to it in in a country where firearms are com- almost completely banned um they actually have a better collection of firearms than any any place in america um and so they went in and they were talking about in this particular video improvised firearms um starting with zip guns and moving on up to um, you know, the, the man who wrote a book about how to, to mill your own submachine gun at home, uh, if you have the tools. And one of the things I found most fascinating about that process was making an actual firearm isn't very hard within certain limits. If you're not really, um, if you're not concerned with having to have it last for years or having to last beyond a firefight, um, it, then you the tolerances on the metal and whether or not it can stand pressure are really low. But making a magazine like home, uh, making a magazine at home is actually really fiendishly difficult to get it so that it, it is all the right uh, dimensions to to slap into the gun correctly, and then making sure you have a spring that will maintain its tension and push. Uh, push the rounds up and all of that. I, I just found that fascinating that one of the most fragile parts, one of the um, hardest to make parts is a part that most people never even think about how it operates. Just doesn't even cross their mind. Yeah. And mags can go bad all the time too. I mean, one of the advantages to using the, uh, it was well, an advantage and a, a disadvantage at the same time. The, the old GI aluminum, uh, M16 mags, um, they can get bent up fairly easily, and they'll stop. They'll stop feeding correctly. They won't eject when they're when they need to. They'll they won't seat correctly, and since they were just aluminum, if we had a bad mag, we'd pull it out of the mix, crush it so it didn't get used again, and then toss it out. Um, like the, the HK steel mags, you can't really do that, but they tend to be a little bit more durable. Heavy, but durable. Um, yeah, mags can be finicky. Even the even commercially produced ones. Um, well, now that you're talking about, about real-life hardware, I've, I've got a just a curious question. We see a lot of the same firearms in uh, TV shows and films. Like the 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 secret operatives always use the H and K MP five, you know, every, every cop's got a Glock or, or one of those, uh, I, I forget what it was. So, so how much, how much is the, of that is fiction and how much of it is there really are standard or common firearms for, for different types of units. 
there are there are certain very common uh, firearms. The uh, the M4 platform is pretty ubiquitous now, particularly since uh, the start of the GWAT, the um, the global war on terror. I mean, just about everybody that we've done any work with, the, the Iraqis use M4s the, and M16s, the Afghans use M4s and M16s now. Um, similarly, the AK platform is still everywhere. Um, that's actually that I have a, I, I'm somewhat known for a certain level of what's termed gun porn in my books. And, uh, part of the fun is sometimes finding whatever cool sorts of, uh, weapons to have the, the black hearts use this time. Um, it was a bit of an authenticity issue in the American Praetorian series that the Praetorians could use as long as it was a 7.62, they could use whatever rifle they wanted. Well, in retrospect, that, that causes problems with magazine interchangeability because none of these, like, if a guy, one guy ran low, then if a guy with a, a Mark 17 ran low, then his buddy with an AR-10 could not simply toss him a mag or, or with an, an M14 could not oh, simply yeah. toss, him, toss him a mag because the mag wouldn't fit. But it was kind of rule... Sometimes you can, that, that was one of those things you can sometimes kind of edge over into rule of cool. Um, right. But with the Blackheart series, um, the Blackhearts don't have their own personal sort of iconic weapon with the Praetorians. Um, so it's a matter of what are they going to use for this mission when they're going into this particular part of the world that's A, they can resupply ammunition easily, and B, they're kind of going to blend in a standout that, oh, there's these odd-looking foreigners with weapons that we don't see around here. Uh, so I get, I get to, to play around sometimes with uh, various, various weapon systems that aren't necessarily all that well-known outside of the gun community. Um, like I had him using AK-12s in the first book and G3s in the second book. And... But yeah, as, as to the original question, there's more of a variety than you'll see in Hollywood. And Hollywood is one of HK's biggest PR arms. Uh, if, any, if, if you haven't... Go search on Larry Curry's blog for it's a, it's it's probably about a ten year old post now. HK because you suck and we hate you. <laughs> I I have read that post. Yes, it, it, it's classic. Um, I've got we are running out of time, but I've got one last question I want to ask about you, and this is the I think one of the biggest problems with writers is one of the biggest problems writers face is that, okay, you're a conscientious person. You want to get stuff accurate. You want to, you know, have a great deal of fidelity with your action scenes and stuff. So you go out and you want to do some research on firearms and talk to some people who know what they're talking about and see what they say and kind of learn from them. So you go out and find two people who really know what they're talking about. And one of them is convinced that the M16 
um, round is absolutely wimpy. It's no damn good. You have to shoot five or six times to kill somebody. And so it's terrible, but the AK is great. And another person is out there saying, no, the AK is awful because of these other reasons. And uh, the, M, you know, the M16 and the M4, that they're great guns and it, you shouldn't even be looking at using an AK. And the bitter arguments between experts you know, in the field of guns, the field of cars, the field of history, archaeology, whatever, mean that as a, an amateur, you have no authority to go through. How do you thread the needle on the, in situations like that? Because all of us have areas that we're not expert in, that we're going to have to rely on somebody else's opinions. How do you pick an opinion that's good enough for the audience to buy into? Ooh. See, I've had to do that with a few things like cyber, uh, cyber warfare. Computers, <laughs> another excellent example. Yeah, you, you, there comes a point where you've got to. Yeah, there are a lot of, like, you you hit the nail on the head with the the AK versus AR argument. And as far as firearms, you need to find somebody who will basically tell you that. It's a toolbox. There is no magic bullet, and very there are different pros and cons to every tool. Um, kind of, kind of like the, uh, um, kind of like De Niro's character in Ronin, when uh, uh, Sean B is asking him what 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 he favors weapons wise, and he says, "Well, you know, it's a toolbox. You use the tool for the job." Ronin is a great movie, by the way. Awesome movie. Um, but uh, there comes a point where you've just got to you got to seek out enough opinions that you can get some kind of feel for the landscape that you're trying to, to describe, whatever it is. And accept that there are certain things where you're going to get close enough, and that's about it. And that that was a hard one for me to swallow too. <laughs> I, I still kind of look back at some of the uh, the American Praetorian series and wonder, should I? That that's really kind of dated now. Should I go back and update that? And generally, people tell me no. Yeah, unless you can make money writing, don't you know? Unless you can make money writing it, by and large, don't go back and rewrite. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we are we are well past out of time, but that's okay. It was a fascinating discussion. Covered a lot of topics. We, we thank you very much for being willing to talk about not only your uh, book series, but also general knowledge about the military and stuff. And again, uh, links to uh, Amazon page where you can look at the American Praetorians. Um, and it's Brannigan's Blackhearts. Brannigan's Blackhearts is the other series. I was going to say Bravehearts, but I knew that was wrong. And so, you know, I threw in a, a pregnant pause there, and I appreciate you jumping in and covering my ignorance. Um, and then also the Unity Wars. Uh, there's another link. Both of those are in the description underneath the video. Do you, do you have any final words to say before we uh, start rolling out? Well, just thanks for having me on, and hopefully folks will check the books out and enjoy them, and I'll keep churning them out. So the Unity Wars are a science fiction action thriller series about what if the Clone Wars had been written by someone who knew what they were talking about, uh, about warfare. Um, 
and uh, you know, encourage people to go and check out uh, Peter's works and uh, keep an eye out for upcoming books in the series. Uh, in fact, you have one that's just about to come out, right? Yes, the third book is in pre-order right now, and uh, it'll go live on the 14th. 14th of this month, folks. So you have time to catch up on the first two books before the third one comes out. Um, uh, Dornald, do you have any uh, any last words before we... Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Pete. It was great talking to you. You're getting a lot of uh, love in the chat as well. Uh, John Malson showed up, and they got distracted by Lord of the Rings for a while, but uh, but they were following <laughs> along. It was good. We, we should have Jeffro on again so he can defend his position on Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, it was a good show. Uh, it's great talking to you guys. Thanks for coming on, and, and most importantly, Pete, thank you for your service. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um. And I just want to say thanks to uh, Peter both for coming on. Thanks to everybody who showed up to uh, participate in the chat. And thanks to my uh, stalwart fellow host, Dornall, for uh, stepping in and hosting this, uh, hosting this show. Because as you mentioned at the top, I am on a phone out in the middle of the boonies uh, with no access to an Internet. I've got computers in the house here, but no Internet. So uh, very, very grateful that Google finally updated its app so that I could call in on the iOS uh, platform. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here at all, folks. Uh, just been, you know, John Peter talking. Um, so thank you, Google, for helping me uh, save my career. Um, and uh, we want to remind everyone that you can subscribe. Click like if you like the video, subscribe, and be sure to click the bell icon to double secret subscribe to actually get the benefits of the subscribe button. Um, or if you uh, were on youtube.com slash geekgab, or if you're interested in subscribing uh, to the podcast on a platform of your choice, we offer GeekGab on a panoply of platforms. You can go to soundcloud.com, just do a search for GeekGab and uh, subscribe to us there. You can go to the Google Play Store, GeekGab is available there for any of your Android devices, or you can go to the iTunes Store and get our podcast for any iOS-based devices you could want, and even on the macOS if you were so inclined. Big thanks to everybody who's been uh, supporting the show for so long. Big thanks to all the people who've agreed to come on up until now. We're looking forward to next week. Finally, we have got, uh, we've been able to get P. Alexander of Kursova Magazine coming back again. Um, and so we're looking forward to that next week. And after that, we'll do some other stuff we don't know about just yet. We are signing off for today, folks. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back. <laughs>